Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest today is Deborah Peel, founder and president at Patient Privacy Rights. Since 2004, Patient Privacy Rights has been the world's leading defender of the human and civil right to health privacy. I first asked Deborah Peel how she got involved in defending patient privacy. Uh, I never thought I'd be doing this, actually. I was very, very happy as a, as a clinician, and I practiced 42 years. My last psychoanalytic patient finished in 2017, but I got interested in privacy you know, much earlier than that, and kind of people finished. I didn't, you know, I didn't sign up for more because advocacy is is not conducive to being in practice. <laughs> was there a, a seminal moment? Was there a moment when you thought, I've got to do something about this? I grew up with a man who was an engineer, a technician. You know, he invented management sciences and cybernetics and linear programming and all this stuff. You know, he's he was a great teacher. You know, I had this fabulous education in, you know, great high school. Anyway. So you had the education and then you had the clinical experience. And then you realized that somehow technology was being used to compromise that relationship between the doctor and the patient. I became a Freudian analyst. And and so the Freudians were very hot about, about privacy and the HIPAA privacy rule, when it was first, when it was implemented in the first year of President Bush's administration, required everyone who held the data, every institution, every doctor, and so on who held the data, to get meaningful consent, which had always been the case in the paper world. Okay, so for one year, the HIPAA privacy rule did give you privacy, meaning as defined as, you know, as defined as control over your personal information, which the Europeans kind of expand into what the right to the human universal human right to privacy means is your right to autonomy, self-determination, respect, and control over information. So we noticed that the amended, well, after Bush took took office, we went and visited, you know, Health and Human Services, and, and they were very disturbing. They said, you know, because we were worried because during the long process in the Clinton administration, um, when they proposed the privacy rule, they said, hey, we think we need to take consent out so it's easier for doctors to just exchange your information. But they alerted the public when they asked for public comments. 52,000 people did. And 95, 90% of them, 90% of them, excuse me, said, what, are you crazy? But, you know, patients have to have the right to control their information. It's the basis of trust. It comes from the Hippocratic Oath, all that. So Clinton, before he left office, tried to implement it in December, right before, you know, the, the administration's changed in January. A famous thing, try to rush it through. So Bush put it on hold. Anyway, they put consent back in. They said, okay, we're taking your comments seriously. We hear you. We're putting it back in. Okay, so then Bush gets in and he implements it in April. Okay, but then there's a new proposed privacy rule. And so we went in and met with the people at HHS. And essentially, and this is almost a direct quote because it was so weird. I remember, you know, the, the gist of it is, is like, we don't care what Joe Sixpack thinks. <laughs> 
that's how they reviewed the, that was their that was the person's comment about the American public Joe six pack. You know, this is what we're going to do. And so they put out the proposed rule. They did not flag that they'd taken consent out, but they still got 11,000 comments. I know because our lawyer and his team counted them and it was 90%. Again, that said, Hey, put consent back in, but this time they didn't do it. Now that actually violates the American, 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 um, the, no, Administrative Procedure Act, which requires the administration to take into account and address the comments and say why or why not. They just blew that off. And nobody noticed but the 3,000 Freudian analysts. So we were the only ones paying attention when privacy was stripped out. Nobody reported on it. You know, it was like we were the only ones who read the sentence, and the sentence goes like this. That I obviously have it memorized because it's a critical blow. It says the consent provisions are replaced with regulatory authority. This means this should never happen. A federal agency shouldn't do something that Congress didn't, didn't do. And Congress did not see, oh, well, going back earlier, Congress set itself a three-year deadline to come up with a, a congressional, you know, a law, their own law. And they fought, they were fighting so hard on it. They said, if it's not done by three years, it'll get kicked to HHS. So then HHS was the authority. Congress could take away privacy, but there's no, there's under no circumstance should a, you know, a right like that be taken away by a federal agency. But they did, they took it away. And so we didn't know what to do because, of course, the bills, you know, when you print them out, if you actually read them, apparently nobody reads, but, you know, the 3,000 analysts, I don't know who, who missed the sentence, but, you know, uh, so it says, you know, the consent provisions are replaced with regulatory permission for covered entities. That's anyone that holds your data, you know, you know, like providers of different types, hospitals, labs, x-ray facilities, clinics, all that kind of thing, doctors, covered entities. So it gives regulatory permission for covered entities to use and disclose your protected health information for three uses, treatment, payment, and healthcare operations. Well, there's nothing you can't squeeze into one of those three so that we were stripped totally of privacy and no one noticed it but us. And so... We sued HHS, and we thought we would win, but the, <laughs> there were a couple problems with that. Um, this was the only lawsuit about trying to restore privacy, and the Supreme Court never acts on anything unless it's ripe with a lot of other people suing for the same thing, but no one knew. Anyway, we got status to sue in federal court because of my affidavits. I went to three different pharmacies in Austin, and I said, I request, you, ha you had to do it in writing. I request that you not disclose my or my family's prescriptions. Weeks and months later, I got back a Dear Deborah letter. Dear Deborah, we care about your privacy, but no. And so here's, the, here's, your, here's how you explain the legal part of it. Okay, so it's kind of like voting rights. Do you have a right to vote if you have to pay a poll tax or show a fishing license? You know, anyway, you know, how do you have a right if you have to beg someone and they have the power to say no. What they said was, gee, you know, this is important, but 
All you have to do is go to a different provider. It's not state action. The government is not forcing all these providers to do this. So just find a provider that offers consent. Well, guess what? Nobody did. <laughs> Nobody did. Okay, maybe a few you know, individual physicians, but none, none of the big hospitals, nobody. So anyway, it went all the way up and we lost because they kept saying the same thing. But here's the interesting part. When our economy went off the cliff in 2007, ARA, the high-tech bill, proposed to put $100 billion or more into wiring up all the hospitals and doctors. Okay, this is, this is now state action. Congress was giving every doctor and hospital incentives, money up front to buy electronic health records. And then after a few years, if you didn't use them, you would get penalized somewhat on what you're paid. Well, now we have state action. But we still couldn't get anyone to sue to overthrow it, you know, because it's clearly state action now because the state is saying all you doctors, you have to do it. Hospitals have to do it. And so it's created this nightmare of consolidation because the, all the little rural hospitals and smaller hospitals can't afford all that. And they sold it to Congress on the basis of this was going to create more efficiency, more efficient care better quality and lower costs. And here we are, 12 years later, no such thing. Not only do we have less efficiency, not only do we have higher costs, we also have lower quality. I mean, every single reason that Congress bought this is wrong. And, and, you know, and by the way, what kind of idiot thinks a corporation is going to ever lower its profits or revenue? They have to make revenue for their shareholders or they can't be a corporation. So there's a lot of blindness, hypocrisy, innocence, stupidity. More lately, I've been thinking the reason that people want to believe all these lies is they're vulnerable. They're sick. It's been really hard to get the message to the public because, you know, when you're vulnerable, of course you want to believe it's all for altruism and the greater good and all that, but it isn't. It's actually, this information is actually sold endlessly. You might know of Latanya Sweeney at Harvard, a brilliant computer scientist. The, the example, the first one she used, I remember the most, is a white guy of a certain age, 67, had a motorcycle accident in, uh, let's say, it wasn't Leander, but it was a city in California. And then they took the California database of uh, health claims and so on and, and could easily figure it out from the date, <laughs> from the age, from the place, you know. And so meaning you don't even really have to have a computer to re-identify people because uh, that's another thing about the health industry in the U.S. that I absolutely hate. They lie. You know, they're like, oh. It's de-identified. Oh, it's anonymized. But people really don't know how easy it is. It's super, super easy. Two computer science scientists, UT Austin, did a three-page paper for ACM, American Computing, whatever it is. And basically, they said, forget it. It's too easy. It's, it's trivially easy. But people who are not mathematicians or didn't have a mathematician father... It, you know, it seems reasonable to them. Oh, it's too hard. Oh, the other thing is, is privacy in the United States and the healthcare system has no definition of the word. 
None, zero. So it's, it's get all mushed and conflated with security. Security is a foundation. It's like, uh, think of a bank vault. It's locked. You can't easily get in there. So you have to have security. If you don't, you know, obviously anyone can get in and take whatever your assets are out of wherever it is, a, a database or whatever. But privacy, so, so security is foundational. It's separate from privacy, which means really control over your information. And, and, and that means universal respect for you, the human being. And you can, you can decide to share data that I wouldn't. You know, each person should create their zone of privacy. That's from uh, the UN's first special rapporteur on the right to privacy. He talks a lot about the zone. Everyone gets a zone of privacy and we each get to create it. You shouldn't be able to make a decision that will affect other people, hurt other people. You can you can take a risk and you know gamble away all your assets, but you shouldn't be able to hurt other other people. The problem is our health histories and specifically our genetic histories are used to harm other people. So patients have picked up on this. And as of 2016, a survey of 12,090 adults by Black Book Marketing found. 89% of adults were withholding information from providers because they don't trust the technology or the people using it. You know how hard it is to find any surveys or any research about privacy? That, that came out in 2017. And if you don't think I've pounded on the door of Black Book trying to get someone like, when are you going to do this again? We have some earlier stuff, or there are earlier surveys. The first survey I ever found was with the California Healthcare Foundation in 2005. And at that time, they, they found in a little survey that one in eight or 13% of people, it's 2005, did something to try to limit information. They didn't fulfill a prescription. They didn't take a test. They didn't tell somebody something. They, they either acted or withheld. They took action. When people act by withholding, I mean, just think of the consequences. They're putting their own life at risk and, you know, and potential harm because they know in this country that there's so much discrimination because this information is out there, for sure by the health plans. If you're in the U.S. or you're in Europe or Australia or wherever, and you're thinking about your future health care, Given that the, the world that we have now created, we, I say we, I mean, yeah. we society have created, where we are selling yeah. data and yeah. where the whole relationship between the doctor and physician is based on trust and intimacy and, and the sharing of information that should not be anyone else's business, where are we going to end up? No, the public wants to, the, the U.S. public all believes they should control their data, uh, but it's been very confusing, you know, because... Government, this also, all this stuff happened, don't forget. A big catalyst was 9-11. Uh, so that, that was part of it. But it both, it's very clear to me that whoever changed that sentence and eliminated consent, both government and industry wanted it, and it was already going on. And so the insurers began to suck up data and demand more and more. Then they demand whole records and all this kind of thing. And, you know, and they use the data to jack up people's premiums or deny them altogether. So they take no risk. Back to the 1980s when I was a family physician in the UK, 
And yeah. I now laugh at the, the idea that patients used to be upset because the receptionist was looking in there. <laughs> that's the least of your problems, the least of your problems. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But that's how people feel. And then then they used to use, you know, they used to talk about how, well, you know, if your name's taken off, then we we would give them, we would give them, um, and I did this in some of my testimony, they'd say, well, what if your name was taken off? And, and, uh, and, and we would use the example of, what if there was a naked picture of you and your head wasn't in it? Maybe somebody might recognize you, but you would feel horribly harmed if you recognized yourself. And then when I was testifying in front of Congress, you know, I would sort of preempt that. I would say, you know, here's the thing. People always want me to tell stories about privacy violations. But if I told a story about one of my patients, even disguised, and they heard it or they saw it, who would trust me? Who would ever trust me again? That shut them up. That was Deborah Peel on the challenges to patient privacy over the last few years. It always amazes me how optimistic and forward-thinking our guests are on this podcast. It is quite clear, as Deborah says, that patients, that we all, in fact, would like to defend our right to privacy. And there's no question that the law will ultimately be changed because it has to. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at www.journalofhealthdesign.com.